Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Draft Board. David and Tyson along with you. As usual, we hope you all have been doing as as well as possible in these uh, in these pandemic times, which obviously has been affecting different people in different regions differently. Uh, we hope you're staying safe. We hope you're getting out, getting your fresh air, and staying in touch with people and, and making wise decisions. We hope that we can perhaps alleviate a little bit of, I don't know, shall we say any boredom perhaps you might be feeling with some with some with them some fun sports talk as we always try to do or stress and anxiety you know like um podcasts is kind of part of that normal life like a lot of people listen to podcasts in their daily life and i think that you know by talking about sports and talking with you here today it can be a helpful distraction at least or or maybe a little bit of uh, some normalcy in your life so that's hopefully what we're trying to do here today and yeah, we're excited to get to it. And we are excited because this is the draft board's first actual draft episode. <laughs> because as many of you may know, the NFL draft took place last Thursday. And as usual, it generated a lot of buzz, a lot of discussion among fans and analysts leading up to the event. And it was, you know, there was something surreal about watching it live on, on ABC is, is where I watched it and seeing crowds of vaccinated fans actually being able to hang out together and make some noise to see Browns legends like, oh my goodness, I, it's going to be embarrassing if I forget that name. Bernie Kosar, I think it was. Bernie Kosar, he was a quarterback. Jarvis Landry and, of course, Joe Thomas, my personal favorite, one of my top all-time favorite football players, seeing him hype the crowd up. It was really cool how they, the NFL and Roger Goodell, decided to invite a fan from a different team up for, I think at least was the first round selections. I don't know if they kept doing it for every round, but mm-hmm. to invite fans from a different team up to sit in Roger Goodell's chair mm-hmm. and in some cases actually just straight up announce the picks or at least be there for it is a lot of fun in a tough year. Yeah, so that was the chair that he had in his basement when he was doing the draft last year online. So I think it's really good for him to bust out that old chair and and bring it back for the special occasion of the draft. And I think it was really good for them to have vaccinated fans and a safe capacity there to really be there and support this event. And, you know, these players, they only get drafted once, and this is a a great time in their lives, and we're, we're happy to celebrate it with them. So, yeah, I'm I'm happy that we were able to do the draft this year uh, somewhat in person and well it was in person but you know limited as it much as it needed to be for it to be safe and yeah i'm super happy that the browns were able to host it and give a good show usually they're drafting in the top 10 but not this year no and i'm sure browns fans are very happy about that fact because this team is finally on the upswing and to be perfectly honest i'm going to be rooting for them in a bandwagon capacity because they have went through 50 plus years of competitive misery and now they have an ascending defense a quarterback that at least has them respectable and hopefully this upward trajectory continues now obviously there was but one name uh, on everyone's lips to touch off the 2021 nfl draft a quarterback 
whom almost everyone felt was the consensus number one overall pick, and that, of course, was Kyle Trask. Just kidding. (laughs) Trevor Lawrence, you football fans know what his name is, and we're going to talk about him a little bit later because for our customary feel-good story, Tyson, we actually have to go a little bit deeper into the first round, and that is, of course, to the 21st overall selection of Quiddy Pay, defensive end, formerly for the Michigan Wolverines, who had a pretty miserable season <laughs> last year, but Pay was one of their best players, and he projects to be a versatile, athletic pass rusher who can line up on both edges. And at 270 pounds, six foot three, he has the size and build to rush interior as well as defend the run. And in addition to that, he has some pretty freakish athleticism and burst. And a fun story about that goes all the way back to his high school days. Mm. He was also played running back back then. And his high school coach told The Athletic an anecdotal story about in one game, Quiddy Pay went 90 yards untouched to the end zone on a straight-ahead dive play. That's insane. That's actually so crazy. I mean, it just shows you how much raw athleticism this guy has and, and how much of a natural athlete you you can be. Like, just to run straight 90 yards and nobody touch you, that's 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 crazy athleticism just boom, right through the middle. And especially, again, for our non-football listeners out there, a dive play is what it sounds like. It's straight ahead. And what that usually means is you're running straight into the linebacking core. Any safeties that the other team might be dropping down to stop the run. You And to be able to not just go 90 yards, but have no one really be able to lay a hand on him, like you said, is fairly freakish. But what makes him truly special, Quiddy Pay? is his life story, and we really felt like it was worthwhile for us to jump on the media coverage of this that has taken place already in the draft and on NFL Network and on various sports outlets because this is the kind of thing that you really take hope and inspiration from, and it's something that we all need more of in our lives. So Quiddy Pay, his mother Agnes, and his older brother Komate, I apologize if I pronounced that wrong, but they are from Liberia, a war-torn country on Africa's west coast. And within the last three decades, the troubles really went to another level in that country when Liberia experienced a violent coup in 1989. They went essentially from one brutal dictator named Samuel Doe to another one named Charles Taylor. Mm. And both of them routinely engaged in ethnic cleansing, and other crimes against humanity not dissimilar to the very well-known and infamous Rwandan genocide. Mm -hmm. And this violence and cleansing took many lives, including Quiddy's grandfather, which is actually the man he's named after. Hmm. The name Quiddy means civilization, their native language, and Quiddy's mother Agnes chose to to honor the grandfather uh, in this way and... Unfortunately, because Agnes Pay is from a tribe that was targeted by Charles Taylor's regime, she had to flee. And she actually made it to nearby Sierra Leone on foot through the brush Mm. by herself with no help, where she gave birth to Komate not long afterwards. Wow. And she knew full well that had she been caught, she would have been killed, as would her family. Wow. 
And unfortunately, it didn't stop there because this war continued to spread and it forced her to move to a different refugee camp in Guinea, another West African country. And that's where Quiddy was born in 1998. A year later, Agnes chose to emigrate to Providence, Rhode Island. And in some ways, this was only possible because the area, this area in Rhode Island has a number of Liberian refugees already there. This has been sort of a sub-community that's been established right. over the course of the last few decades. Agnes had an aunt that had already gone there, and that's what made it possible or part of what at least set the precedent. But as you can tell, it was a massive leap of faith for someone who was destitute and didn't know any English. But nonetheless, Agnes managed to establish herself in America. She managed to hold down three jobs at one point and also went to nursing school at another point in time to provide for her two sons. And although their Providence neighborhood was a step up from West Africa, Komate Pei admitted in an NFL Network video that it was still tough because the family had to deal with drugs, gun violence, and poverty to a certain extent, as, of course, this was a a lower-income neighborhood with its own problems. Now, the athletic potential of Pay that we've told you about got him accepted by a private high school named Bishop Hendrickson High School, and they knew back then that this was his best chance to go somewhere with sports, but the $10,000 a year tuition was well beyond what Agnes's $14 an hour salary could realistically cover, but mm-hmm. Pay told his mom, if you send me to Hendrickson, you won't have to pay for college. And that was right, because he earned a scholarship to Michigan. Wow. In fact, that was not the only scholarship he earned, but it was the one that he ended up accepting, of course. And another thing you can't help but respect about this man is he worked hard in both the classroom and on the field. As an African-American studies major, he had one B throughout his whole time in school and earned Big Ten all-academic honors for three years. Wow. And interestingly enough, he told The Athletic that he initially put effort into school to give himself the best chance at landing a good job. He didn't actually realize that an NFL career was possible for him until after his junior year when his draft stock rose and he began appearing on mock drafts. Interesting. That's really interesting. And it just kind of goes to show the character that he has. He didn't he didn't let it go to his head really at all and he went in with a very practical mindset. He didn't over-evaluate himself, but and it turns out that's kind of what you want to do because you want other people to look at you and say, hey, we want to give you a shot. And I think the my favorite part of the entire draft on Thursday was that once Quiddy was drafted, he went on the ESPN broadcast with his arm around his mom, and he told Maria Taylor, she's done working, she's retired. Aww. And at that point in time, the extended family and friends around them just erupted, and it was it was a phenomenal moment. And granted, as an athlete, pay is raw. And he had only four sacks as a Michigan Wolverine last season, which is well below his talent level. But the physical tools are there. And Colts general manager Chris Ballard rightfully realized that Quiddy Pay is a survivor. And he will most likely be able to overcome adversity in his professional life because he has already overcome so much. And... Another thing that I really loved hearing about when Pay was drafted was uh, from Kirk Herbstreit, a well-known and beloved NFL analyst. He said something along the lines of, we get obsessed with measurables and how fast the guy is, but really this is 
essentially what matters. And we wanted to share that story with you folks today because it's really worth learning about. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's really cool to see how, you know, his mom went through so much to get out of Liberia to avoid the the dictatorships and the, the war-torn country that, that Liberia was and and just the the perseverance that it takes and, and the and the ability to survive like you mentioned that's incredible and and it's definitely been a, a hard time for the family and and I, I'm so thankful that you know Quiddy was able to get a scholarship and go to Michigan and get a good education and you know it just shows that that character that you talked about is something that it's so 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 valuable not in football but in real life mm-hmm. and, and that's just to show you like that's so cool and to show you such a, a wonderful story of success and you know we we both wish Quiddy Pay the best in Indianapolis and hopefully you'll get to see him next year with the, I would with like the, to see him play some games and maybe one day even cover him as a professional but that would be great and just to cap this off If we haven't already convinced you about the integrity that this man is made of, even though he's never been to Liberia because he was born in Guinea, his dream is to one day return there and spearhead humanitarian efforts to open schools and give other young men and women a chance to get out of the misery that they've been born into. And this just shows you how how he's not just looking out for himself. He's Mm. somehow able to feel a sense of duty to a country that was frankly horrible to his mom and a country that he's never even set foot in. That's something else. Yeah, that's that's very, very special. Like, I can't believe that, you know, Quiddy would have that desire, especially after everything that his mom went through. I think that just shows, like, what a man that Quiddy has become. And, and you know, good job on, on, on becoming that man and also... You know, for Quiddy's mom, you really raised a good one here, and that's that's great. Thanks, David. Desmond Howard, who was on the ESPN draft panel along with Kirk Herbstreet, said that Quiddy will win a Walter Payton Man of the Year award one day, and I think that that is more than plausible, mm-hmm. given what we know of him. Now, with that said, let us move on to our... Our draft coverage, we can call it that, yeah. our, our draft coverage, and we will start, of course... With Trevor Lawrence, the elite quarterback prospect who looks like he's an Asgardian prince. Take <laughs> it away, Tyson. So there's not much to say about Trevor Lawrence. Like, he's a really, really good football player. His best year was probably his freshman year at Clemson when he took over the starting job as a five-star recruit out of, you know, out of, out of high school and was able to lead Clemson to the national championship game and win. And the champion, and that was probably his best year as a, as a freshman. He was a freshman All-American. But with Trevor Lawrence, you know, he's been such a highly touted recruit. He was built up so much in some people's heads that, in some ways, that people probably thought that in his second and third years, when they didn't win the national championship, maybe that they had underachieved, so to speak. Those are high standards, right? Well, when the when the champions when the expectation for Trevor Lawrence going into his third year is, you got to win the Heisman Trophy. You got to win the national championship. You got to put up amazing stats, and you also have to go first overall. That's a tall task for anyone, and I think that you know that is a lot of pressure for for any person to try and deal with. So, I think that when you look at Trevor Lawrence, when you look at his game, he has a lot of 
great tools and great assets. And that's why he's going number one, and that's why he went number one to Jacksonville. So I guess when you think about Trevor Lawrence, maybe when some people look at him, he wasn't quite as good as what people had built up in their minds. But make no mistake, this guy's a really, really good player. Like He has great arm talent with good power, good accuracy. He can make any throw you want. Like The most difficult throws, like the 15-yard comeback, the 10-yard out routes to the wide side of the field, he can make those throws. On a windy day. On a windy day. You know, he, he's a, he's the kind of guy who's, you know, he's got good leadership. He's going to be able to get a locker room galvanized behind him. He's 6'6". He's got prototypical size. The Clemson Tigers used him in read options all the time, and he was on the run, and he would be able to break out of sacks and play very well outside of the pocket as well. Realistically speaking, this is probably the most um, complete prospect as a, at the quarterback position that we've seen come out of the draft. Who has some very luscious locks to boot. Oh, the long blonde hair. Nobody can match that. Maybe <laughs> Troy Polamalu. But <laughs> ha, that Troy Polamalu's hair is a different breed. It really is. So when we look at Trevor Lawrence, he's got all the talent. He's got the he's got good numbers. And I guess like there was a little bit of some controversy a little before the draft. There was some context and some things that Trevor Lawrence said that maybe some media people blew out of proportion. Trevor Lawrence came out of the draft kind of saying that he didn't have a chip on his shoulder, you know, saying that he wasn't a, you know, that kind of guy who's got that big massive chip on his shoulder, who's got that fiery intentions of he's going to prove everybody wrong, he's going to prove the doubters wrong, because he said that I've always been the top guy, and I've always been that, and I can't manufacture a fake chip on my shoulder when I've never had one. But, I, you know, he still said that he's still committed to football and he loves football. But, you know, coaches and dads said that, you know, he's very focused on things that being a well-rounded personality, like football isn't everything to him. Mm-hmm. And his dad came out and said that, you know, he wouldn't be surprised if Trevor Lawrence walked away from football and would be completely fine and be completely happy. So that kind of, like, leads to this kind of, question mark about where you know Trevor Lawrence's mentality is at because I think when we look at quarterbacks we want that Tom Brady mentality of I'm going to play till I'm 45 I'm not going to stop playing you know you know not the Jamarcus Russell mentality of I'm going to not watch tape and then tell my team I did well I mean (laughs) I'm joking of course it's a little bit different but like you know that that can be misinterpreted as such right like, the idea of, like, oh, I'm totally okay without playing football is kind of like, oh, are you? Do you really care about winning then? And that's kind of a something that was kind of questioned about Trevor Lawrence before the draft is kind of that idea of, like, okay, are you really committed to winning? And so I guess when you look at the two comparisons to Trevor Lawrence, and it's between Andrew Luck and Peyton Manning, and that's kind of what I, what I see is that Peyton Manning is kind of on the high end. He, obviously, Peyton Manning, he has some exceptional abilities pre-play, pre-snap. He has so much knowledge about the game that I don't think anybody will be, ever be able to match him. But, you know, kind of that style of play that Peyton played, I could see Trevor Lawrence playing. But that interesting comparison to Andrew Luck is very fascinating because Andrew Luck walked away from football early. He retired relatively soon, still in his 20s. Granted, after his body was decimated by multiple injuries. Absolutely. So when you think about it, maybe there's a chance that by 28, 29 years old, if Trevor Lawrence doesn't have a good team around him, maybe he'll walk away from football. So that's probably the thing that scared some scouts the most and some teams the most about drafting Trevor Lawrence. But 
it's hard to argue with the tape and his talent. He's good enough to be a first overall pick. And physically, the comparison to Andrew Luck's kind of interesting because they both got the arm strength. Andrew Luck had that prototypical bulk at six foot four, two hundred forty pounds. But one thing that I find interesting is that even though Trevor Lawrence has a much lankier build, you said six foot six, but only listed at two hundred thirteen pounds. On paper, that's it reminds me more of a hockey build mm-hmm. uh, or maybe a a soccer goalkeeper build, but. What When I read Lawrence's scouting report, no one really seems to say, oh, he's got his, his frame is too slight, or, or is he going to be durable enough to take hits, which I find interesting because when you watch him run, he actually can break a few tackles. He's fast, he's tough, and that's definitely a secondary skill that he has in his toolbox to keep defenses honest with, of course, his arm talent and his football IQ being his primary weapons. And I, I'm glad you brought up that that talk of oh, how dedicated is Lawrence, because when I read some of his tweets in response to, to those allegations, mm-hmm. he essentially said, yes, I love football. I love to chase my goals. I'm fully dedicated or else I wouldn't be here, but I know who I am. I know where my identity lies, and I don't need to... I don't need to have my identity be in football. Rather, mm-hmm. football is a part of me. And if you know something about Trevor Lawrence, you know that he's a, his faith is very important to him. And, you know, as mm-hmm. you and I are both people of faith, and I think that we can, when we read those tweets, we can maybe see something that others others maybe don't. Because, Tyson, when I, when I read those words, I was incredibly impressed. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that Trevor is the man that we think he is because... Ultimately, it's really important for everyone to have a healthy self-image. And Mm -hmm. a healthy self-image, frankly, it's not healthy if it's based in only one thing. Oh, you're a football player, or you're a businessman, or a scientist, or you're good at this, or you've got that. Because life can take that away from you at any point in time. We just talked about Quiddy Page just as easily he could never have made it out of war-torn West Africa, and football might not ever have been part of his life. Or even maybe if Pay had made it to Rhode Island but wasn't able to get into that private high school because of money, maybe he doesn't play football. But I think there's a lesson to be learned here with Trevor Lawrence, and I think that at least, at least from an outside point of view, I believe he has a very healthy mentality in life. And I think that's, that's toughness and toughness and maturity of a, of a different breed. No, maybe he's not Tom Brady who is just constantly fired up and wants to win, you know, wants to prove everyone wrong, but he's a man who understands who he is, what he's worth, and he's going he's not going to allow difficulties in his football life to derail the rest of his life. And I frankly think that that's something that a lot of people, you know, including myself, need to be able to learn from. Thank you for pointing that out. Like, when you say, you know, Lawrence's spirituality is a big part of that, I would agree with you. And I think that that's true and that Trevor's faith being very close and very important to him gives him that different perspective of of life. With Trevor, I think that you're absolutely right, that he has a different perspective. And I think that that's good. And I think that'll really help him later on in life. I think what the scouts have seen, and maybe anybody who's criticized Lawrence of that, is saying that they don't that he doesn't fit into the traditional mold, which 
we're here saying that's not a bad thing. No, it's not at all. And quickly before we move on, just uh, a disclaimer. Obviously, not all of our listeners share our Christian faith. And we do want to recognize that there are a lot of people out there who have been hurt by the church, who have been hurt by Christianity. And even if not, perhaps they've simply gotten used to Christian cliches, prolific athletes praising God, sort of this idea of T-bowing has maybe gotten old for a lot of people, and I think that's totally fair, but we wanted to bring it up just to share a different perspective for everyone's mm-hmm. consideration. At the end of the day, we will see what Trevor Lawrence ends up doing. He certainly got his work cut out for him in Jacksonville, a team with many needs, Ultimately, I think we wish him the best of luck. He, he recently got married to his wife, Marissa, and by all indications, he's a very likable guy, mature guy, and, and someone you can get along with regardless of your faith or background, and many of his teammates have said that about him, so we wish him the best of luck, and we're excited to see him take the field down in Florida. Now, of course, going one pick behind Trevor Lawrence is a man who does fit that chip on the shoulder, mm-hmm. fired up mentality. And that, of course, is the baby-faced assassin out of BYU, Zach Wilson. I saw a meme earlier today that essentially said Zach Wilson looks more like a Pokemon trainer than an NFL quarterback. And no disrespect to the man, he's a very talented young athlete, but he just is that very fresh young look and probably could pass for high school if he wanted to. And it's it's kind of funny to think about, but as you know, Tyson, the man can ball. Yeah, he's a he's a good player and he's got a lot of arm strength. Like the, the biggest thing about Zach Wilson is he's got an absolute wow arm, like probably the best in the class. He can make, oh, you would say that. That's a big statement. Yeah, his arm is probably the best in the class. Like, he can make some really talented throws. Like, he had a throw at his pro day where he was rolling to his left, his offside, and then he flipped his hips, threw it back across his body for a 50-yard post route that hits the receiver in stride. And that type of a throw is just insanely difficult to do. I don't care if you're in pads or not. But the man has an arm, and he certainly got some explosiveness in his body. Yeah, for sure. And that's why, you know, the Jets fell in love with him, is that he's got that arm. He saw that. They saw that throw at the pro day. And, and Joe Douglas, the general manager for the Jets, came out and said in an interview that if they were picking at three, Sam Darnold would still be on the Jets because they wouldn't have drafted a quarterback. They would have went another route. They would have went Kyle mm. Pitts or offensive line. But because they were picking it two and they saw uh, Zach Wilson throw, they fell in love. And they said, that's our guy. We need to get him. And we're picking him at two. And we're going to trade Sam. And that's what they decided to do. Now, because of this, Zach Wilson has some incredible upside. But he also has some really, really good bust potential. <laughs> and Good uh, bust potential, as in kind of like bad bust potential. English right. is weird sometimes. Right. So he has some he has some bust potential. And, and there are definitely some concerns about Zach Wilson. Now, Zach Wilson, for those of you who may not know, he actually has ADHD. Hmm. So I'm not saying that Zach Wilson won't succeed because of this ADHD. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying that Zach Wilson... Um, is not going to have to try and fight through this. I think that Zach Wilson, because of his ADHD and because being ADHD is a learning disability, 
that Zach Wilson will need some more time to learn the playbook than maybe another quarterback. Now, I don't know if he's on medication for it or, or what have you, but I think that, you know, Zach Wilson being having that ADHD, I don't think that it's going to stop him from being a great quarterback or it's going to hinder him from being, you know, a quarterback that has all of the knowledge and learning all of the playbooks. But I am going to say that it's probably going to make him have to work a little bit harder than another quarterback in his search situation might have to. So I think that when you think about Zach Wilson, that's something to think about and it's something to keep in the back of your mind. But there are some other kind of quote-unquote red flags with Zach Wilson. So Zach Wilson played at BYU, and BYU is not a top, top school in the nation. You know, they're, they're a good school and they get good recruits, but they're not playing for national championships. They're not playing in the Southeastern Conference, which is, you know, primarily a powerhouse. So they didn't play many competition or good teams this, this, during this time of Zach Wilson. So, but Zach Wilson really struggled against good competition. Mm. So he played against five opponents that had 10 or more wins. Boise State in 2018, Utah, San Diego State, and Hawaii all in 2019, and then Coastal Carolina in 2020. So those five opponents, they're good programs. You know, Boise State's a good program, Utah's a good program, but it's not Oklahoma. It's not Clemson. It's, not, it's certainly not Alabama. It's not Alabama, it's not Ohio State. These are good schools, but they're not necessarily top-tier schools. In those five games, Zach Wilson went 0-5, had one touchdown, seven interceptions, wow, 61% completion percentage. Hmm. Now, the two, probably some of the better coaches that he played against were Utah and Washington. So those are both Pac-12 schools with some good coaches. Uh, in those games, he went 0-3, hmm. three touchdowns, four picks, 64% completion percentage. Mm. Zach Wilson did not play well against teams that were actually good. And I think like Coastal Carolina, they were kind of the darlings this last year in a COVID world where they went, you know, 13-0 and at one point. Or was it 12-0? and I can't remember. I will have to check that later on. Yeah, for sure. Anyways, they, they had a, a large chunk of the season undefeated. You know, they have the blue field, which is absolutely hilarious, and it, and it always garners attention. So Coastal Carolina, kind of that darling kind of rising up-and-comer from kind of one of the, the lower conferences, um, Zach Wilson played in that game, and he wasn't particularly good. So I think when we look at Zach Wilson, we have some big boom potential because of his arm, but he also has some big bust potential because he, he's proven that he doesn't play well against above-average college programs. So I think that there's going to be a lot of coaching that needs to happen with Zach Wilson in order for him to fulfill that potential. And I personally, if I was the coach of the Jets, I would try and get a backup quarterback that could start the first six games of the year just to give Zach Wilson as much time as he possibly can to learn the playbook, learn the defenses, and get ready for the NFL because I think he's going to have a tough time in New York. And that's in some ways almost an understatement because not only have the New York Jets been bad, mm -hmm. quite bad, for the last few years, it's also one of the most brutal markets to play in because it's New York, mm -hmm. right? There are It's such a big stage and... 
people don't have time for your garbage in <laughs> New York. They don't when you drive a little too slow, and they don't when you're a pro athlete that doesn't live up to their very high expectations. So we certainly will be interested to see what Zach Wilson can do with the lot that he's been dealt. He certainly, from an emotional standpoint, he wants to be the very best that no one ever was. Mm-hmm. So if I can throw a Pokemon reference in there. But as we all know, it takes more than desire alone to succeed as a professional athlete. Now, moving right along, the third overall pick, as we discussed on last week's episode, was probably the most interesting storyline going into this draft because the San Francisco 49ers ended up here after being annihilated by injuries. Yep. Nonetheless, they their confidence in Jimmy Garoppolo as a longtime starting quarterback was fading fast. And they wanted a younger option with a higher upside to take them into the future and get them back into being... Well, not necessarily, because they are not long removed from Super Bowl appearance but someone that can really bring them over the hump and stay, let them stay at that high level for a long time. The best ability is availability. And unfortunately, Jimmy Garoppolo hasn't been available because he's suffered with injuries. And that's something that has been really tough for the 49ers. Like, they have a good system, they have a good roster, but Garoppolo just can't stay healthy. And that is why, as again we talked about earlier a firestorm of a debate ended up breaking out amongst analysts and fans as to who the 49ers would actually pick in the first round. Mac Jones was linked to them for a very long time. We had some differing opinions on this, Mac Jones being a high-floor, lower-ceiling type prospect, and you, along with many others, felt that the 49ers should try to hit for a home run a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And they certainly did when they drafted Trey Lance Mm -hmm. instead of Mac Jones in the third round. And they... Third overall. Not third round. Excuse me. Third overall first round. My bad. But listen, they gave up a lot of draft capital for this as well because Miami was previously in possession of that third overall, not third round, third overall pick. And the 49ers, in order to trade for that pick, gave up three first rounders Mm. and a third rounder. This means that the next time the San Francisco 49ers will pick in the first round is 2024, unless they can somehow trade back into a first round pick. That is a massive investment and... Let's take a look at who that investment is and what we think he brings to the table. Now, Trey Lance is a young guy. He turns 21 this coming Sunday. Mm. Right? He's very young, much younger than average. He definitely has the measurable. Six foot four, 224, 225 pounds. Looks every bit the part of an NFL quarterback. He's, he's fast. Yeah, he's fast. He's athletic. He's a small town guy. He's from Marshall, Minnesota, a town of roughly 13,600 people. Interestingly enough, his first choice, the University of Minnesota, would only have recruited him if he agreed to play safety. I mean, that says something about his athleticism mm-hmm. and strength, for sure, but he wanted to play quarterback, and so he ended up playing for the North Dakota State Bisons. This is 
a talking point here because North Dakota State plays in the FCS, the Football Championship Subdivision. And for those who don't know, the FCS is one level lower than the the FBS, the Football Bowl Subdivision, which is where all these elite programs like Ohio State, Alabama, LSU, Clemson, and so on play. So this level of competition that he was going against was certainly a lot lower, and he succeeded against them for sure. He in 2019 he led the Bisons to an undefeated 16 and 0 and an FCS championship win. Because of COVID 19, Lance only played one game in 2020, and that coupled with his youth raises some questions for, pardon me, for his his rawness. But nonetheless, we, we let's let's see what he brings to the table. Yeah, I think so. And like Trey Lance, he's got a lot to work on and, and a lot to kind of get the speed up on in the NFL. Like going from FCS to NFL is a big leap and it's a big jump, especially for someone, you know, of his age. Like the biggest thing that when Carson Wentz, who's also from North Dakota State. You beat me to it, but yes. Yeah, like the biggest thing that he needed to get up to speed with is is getting to speed up with the NFL level of talent. Sure. And I think like that's something that Trey Lance might have to take some time to adjust to. Carson Wentz, you know, I forgive me if I'm wrong. I think he had an extra year of starting. Like I think he started mm-hmm. three or two or three for sure years at North Dakota Certainly State. Certainly far more seasoned than Lance. Yeah, far more seasoned than Lance was coming out of North Dakota State. So more games played means that you're able to kind of have a little bit more of a of a tune to the game, the speed of the game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we'll need to watch out with with Trey Lance when he eventually does start. Now, uh, uh, let's talk about Trey Lance's assets, though. And mm-hmm. arm strength is certainly there. He has potential for very good arm strength and has shown the ability to throw with touch as well. Like we said before, he's got very good size, very athletic. He can break tackles and run for first downs, and that will certainly be something defenses that play him have to watch out for. His greatest strength, I would say, however, is his maturity. Mm-hmm. Much like Wentz, he played in a pro-style offense because that's what North Dakota State runs. And here's what that means. He took snaps under center, a.k.a. he was right behind the center as opposed to standing seven yards deep in what we call the shotgun formation. And the reason why this is more challenging is it requires the quarterback to be able to drop step and make different throws, make throws on time it requires him often to read the full field as opposed to just standing back and shotgun one or two reads or i'm running play action play action on a regular basis lance is very familiar with that in fact he he executed play action on nearly a quarter of his dropbacks it's very significant for especially for someone at the college level another thing that impresses many about him including myself he sets his own blocking schemes Mm -hmm. and that now Again, that's not something every college quarterback does, not by a long shot. In many situations, it's it's the offensive line coach, sorry, the, the, the head coach or the offensive coordinator, whoever the offensive play caller is. They're usually the ones setting their own blocking schemes, and the center is usually the one that communicates with his line at the line of scrimmage. But for Trey Lance to be able to make his own protection calls really shows you that he is studious in the film room. He knows how to read a defense. He also called a lot more audibles in the huddle or at the line of scrimmage, which means that he has a functional understanding of how football works, 
what defenses are showing him and when he needs to check into another play. And finally, one interception in his college career. He takes care of the football almost to the point of being cautious, but as we all know, you cannot be turning the ball over too much at the NFL level. Now for weaknesses, the reason why I earlier said that Trey Lance has the potential for very good arm strength is that his throwing mechanics can be very inconsistent. He doesn't always put his lower body into the throw and tries to just muscle it with his arm, and that can really sap velocity. Now, don't let Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers and Matthew Stafford fool you, ladies and gentlemen. Optimally, a quarterback needs to be able to set his feet, generate power through his lower body, through his trunk, and into his arm to be able to throw with consistent velocity and depth. And Trey Lance hasn't developed that habit yet, which causes some of his throws to, to sail or to fall short, and that's something he needs to work on. He's not always accurate throwing on the move, and despite that one interception, he has fumbled six times mm. before, which means that he does need to learn a different aspect of ball security. He needs to learn to protect himself as well as the ball when he's running. And you better bet he will be running at the NFL level. And to go back to what you were saying about that weaker FCS competition, that issue is compounded by the fact that Trey Lance has only 17 career starts and 318 pass attempts under his belt. Now that might seem like a big number until we compare it to some of the other quarterbacks in this draft. Trevor Lawrence has attempted 1,138 passes in college. Zach Wilson, 837. Justin Fields, who we'll talk about later, 618. Mac Jones, who you're already familiar with, 556. Meanwhile, North Dakota State averaged 45 rushing attempts per game. And they used a fullback at the college level to boot. They were an old-school pound-you play-action team, and this further contributed to Lance's lack of throwing reps. Yeah, so for reference, Trey Lance had the lowest number of throwing attempts, um, I think in 40 years. Wow. And, like, the only person that was close to him was Michael Vick. And the reason why Michael Vick had so few throwing attempts... Because he had track speed? Is because he had track speed and he was running all the time in college. Like... He had tons of rushing yards playing at uh, Virginia Tech. So with Trey Lance, like you mentioned, he was only throwing like 16, 17, 18 times a game, which, you know, isn't a lot of throws and isn't a lot of reps. So that is something definitely to keep an eye out. And like you said, with his throwing mechanics, oftentimes when you have sloppy footwork, it can cause your, when you throw it to the ball to sail on you and for you to overthrow your receiver, and at the FCS level, the safeties might not be fast enough to be able to take advantage of an overthrow and get under the ball for an interception. And it just looks like it was just a, an incomplete pass in, in college. But in the NFL, that's going the other way. So I think that's something to, to keep in mind. But I, I do agree that the limited number of throws, it, it makes for a, a little bit of a concern just because that body of work and production isn't quite there. And ultimately, it's tempting to revisit this Carson Wentz comparison because not only did these two men attend the same school, but they had similar traits coming out of college. Carson Wentz was also a big athletic quarterback with a good arm, natural accuracy, work ethic, and experience in a pro-style offense, albeit against inferior competition. 
As we know, Wentz's career was derailed by a mix of unfortunate injuries and gross roster mismanagement by Philadelphia's front office, which, to be fair, very few, if any, quarterbacks would succeed in a situation like that. But in theory, Lance should be in a good position in San Francisco because, as we said last episode, the 49ers had the league's number two rushing offense in 2019 before injuries wrecked them in 2020. That is how Kyle Shanahan likes to play football, and Lance's experience in a run-heavy system should really benefit both sides. You can see how someone like Kyle Shanahan, the 49ers coach, would love his his RPO ability, his ball handling on play fakes, and as well as his ability to keep the defense honest with his athleticism. As well, the 49ers had the league's number two defense in 2019 in terms of yards allowed, and once Nick Bosa and company get healthy, this should be a very good unit that helps Lance by containing his opponents and allowing him to have a bit smoother of a learning curve in his first few seasons. Now, I said last week that San Francisco's team strengths could benefit a guy like Mac Jones, a a mature, hard worker, and an intelligent guy. But upon further consideration, I would agree with what you said at the end of last episode that essentially they're better served with Lance because if the 49ers have something to fall back on, which they certainly do on both sides of the ball, they have a good chance to develop Lance. He doesn't have to start right away. He doesn't have to be the guy like Zach Wilson needs to be the guy. And that means that it is a higher chance of him reaching his higher ceiling as opposed to someone like Mac Jones. Yeah, I I, I like Mac, but I don't like him as much as I like Trey, Trey Lance. Trey Lance, to me, just has that you know ability to fit into Kyle Shanahan's scheme, that running scheme, so well and so nice. And I think like that's going to be a huge thing for the 49ers. And yeah, like I I would totally agree that, you know, Trey Lance is a really good fit for this this uh, program. But, you know, also I think that if Trey Lance ever gets into trouble or if there's ever anything that goes wrong with him in the pocket or while passing, he has the athleticism to get out of trouble, whether to escape and get out of the pocket for a throwaway or to run and get yards. Mac Jones doesn't have that ability. You know, Mac Jones in college, you know, they showed the tape when he got drafted that, you know, he wasn't able to outrun some of the more athletic defensive tackles in college. And, you know... 300-pound guys. Right. And, like, that's concerning if you need, you know, to, to be able to have great protection in college in order to have success. You're not always going to get that, but... You know, with Trey Lance, I think that they have a good offensive line, but when it does break down, he has more athleticism to escape the pocket and make something uh, up on the run or to get yards by scrambling. For sure. Now, who are we talking about next, Tyson? So let's talk about Justin Fields. I think the biggest thing with Justin Fields is that there was a knock on him as, as an Ohio State quarterback. There was a bias with Justin Fields that, you know, Ohio State quarterbacks, oh, they throw four tons of yards because they're in the Ohio State offense, or they have a track list of receivers around them, like guys like Cardale Jones, who had success with Ohio State, or Dwayne Haskins, never panned out in the NFL, so that scared some people, because maybe it's just the system making the quarterback look good, but it's not actually the quarterback being able to play at a high level, and play in that, you know, NFL level. So with Justin Fields, I think when you go back and you look at his high school recruiting, he was the number two quarterback behind Trevor Lawrence. They came out in the same year. Now, 
uh, Fields went to Georgia, but he didn't beat out Jake Fromm from Georgia, and he actually transferred to Ohio State after losing the starting job. Now, whatever happened there, we don't know. Uh, the head coach at the time who chose Jake Fromm over Fields hasn't spoken to the media or anybody about that yet. He's no longer employed there. But I think, like, when we look at Justin Fields, I think that what happened was is that he was such a highly touted prospect. He played his uh, first year at Ohio State that he possibly could in his second season total in, in college football, I think. And everybody, you know, loved you know, him in his second year because he had all the athleticism. He had great throws. Great size. Great size. Second, you know, like a year ago, everybody was talking about how maybe Justin Fields could beat out Trevor Lawrence. And this year in college football, I think what happened was is that the scouts and analysts and media were so focused on these two guys that they were trying to nitpick at every single chance they got and they couldn't find anything with Trevor Lawrence, so they went to Fields, and they saw some inconsistencies in his game, which I'm going to highlight and I'm going to talk about a little bit, but I don't think they're as concerning as they needed to be. I personally, if I was the Jets and I was going to trade Darnold and I was going to draft a quarterback, I would have taken Fields. Interesting. Why is that? I think that Fields, he has a lower bust potential with still similar upside as Zach Hmm. Wilson. I think that Justin Fields can still make all the throws. Maybe not as great of an arm as Zach Wilson, but he can make all the throws. Plenty strong, for sure. Plenty strong. He's got a good head. He's been able to win against good competition and perform well. Also, I think that he's been able to show a level of maturity and leadership in the fact that the Big Ten Conference this year, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, wasn't planning on playing football. But Justin Fields made efforts and made strides to get the Big Ten Conference back in play so that way they could have a season. And I think that that's super important, and a lot of guys got drafted because of you know that conference making the decision to play. And I believe that Justin Fields was a big part of that. Now, the big kind of knock on Justin Fields was that he can't make it past the first read. You know, he's throwing to a fast receiver at Ohio State. Air raid offense. Air raid offense. They're just throwing it and running it for a thousand yards. Tons of screens, tons of throws, and that kind of stuff. So I went and I tried to do a little bit of research here. And according to the draft network, it it actually says that Justin Fields made more throws past the first read than any other quarterback. Oh. So for reference, Justin Fields threw past the first read on 19% of his throws. Compare that to 17% for Trevor Lawrence, 16.6% for uh, for Lance, Trey Lance, 14.2% for Wilson, and Mac Jones only threw past the first read on 9.7% of his throws. Because Devontae Smith wouldn't stop burning people alive. He's wide open all the time. <laughs> Justin Fields also had the most accuracy on throws past the first read. More than Trevor Lawrence. With 69% completion percentage mm. on the second read, which is incredible. Trevor Lawrence only had 43% on mm. reads past a second uh, option. And that is a good piece of research there, yeah. Tyson, because it goes to show you how sometimes the narratives that sports media latches onto can not only be misleading, but factually false. 
And, yeah. and, and, you know, here on the draft board, one of our goals that we stated at the outset is to try to go beyond some of those narratives and go beyond typecasting, oh, he's a fast guy with a strong arm and an air raid offense, so he's not as good at reading the full field. These numbers would beg to differ. They sure would. And Justin Fields had, the, like, he was the most accurate with 69%. Lance, he had 64%, which is still good. Wilson was 60% past his first read. And Mac Jones, surprisingly, an abysmal 31% past his first read. Really? Really. Wow. Alabama was so good, they didn't need him to be good at that that year. That's, that's, that's the thing, right? Now, I want to kind of preface this and maybe look at this a different way. Lawrence and Mac Jones, they both, it looks like they had some trouble past the first read. But, for example, like a guy like Mac Jones, it was clearly uh, obvious to me in, in watching the games that he played that he was likely able to read the defense better and that that's why he wasn't able to, like he didn't need to get past the first read because he was able to make plays, see the defense, and his first read was always open because he was able to better decipher the defense better. Now, when we look at some of the tape with Justin Fields against the Penn State game, um, there was a game, there was a time where Justin Fields missed a pre-snap read and because he missed a pre-snap read, he held on to the ball because the guy wasn't open, and Micah Parsons came in and sacked him. So, with Justin Fields... Micah Parsons is a freak, by the way. Yeah. Dallas is going to be happy with him. He's, he's that a- linebacking core <laughs> has a lot of speed, a lot of strength, and a lot of thumpia potential. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it has the potential to be one of the best. But, um, like Justin Fields, because he doesn't have that uh, pre-playability as maybe Lawrence or Mac Jones... That's why he needed to be a little bit better on those mm. second reads because of those pre-play reads. Like Mac Jones, majority of Mac Jones' uh, yards came on like pre-snap reads and knowing where to throw the ball. And I would probably and Devonte Smith being Devonte Smith and being Devonte Smith being Devonte Smith. And I would say the same for Lawrence. You know, Lawrence was able to have a, a pre-snap read that was very accurate. He would throw it to the first receiver and he would get the ball there. And I think like that just shows you maybe a weakness a little bit of Justin Fields and that he's not necessarily a, a polished reader of the defense pre-snap. And then he's going to need to have some work because uh, diagnosing coverages and disguises in the NFL are going to be difficult, more difficult, especially than they are at college. So I think when we look at you know Justin Fields as a prospect, I think it was overblown a little bit on how good of a player he was. But, you know, Pro Football Focus, uh, before the draft even came out and said that, you know, the great Justin Fields is the best quarterback past the first read, and Mac Jones was eighth out of, hmm. eight, out, eighth out of eight. Wow. So, I mean, like, there's a, there's, you got to take these in context, and it's difficult to do so. But um, with, with Justin Fields, the scouts kind of nitpicked him to death and saying that his footwork was sloppy, his mechanics were inconsistent, which is all true, and those are things that he needs to fix. And there are times that he relies on his arm and athleticism more than necessarily his footwork and technique, and he's going to have to clean that up in Chicago. But with good coaching, I think this guy has the potential to be a very good quarterback in the NFL. Another thing that's relevant about him, especially when compared to someone like Zach Wilson, which whom, like you said, has a number of losses against quality competition in college, Fields finished with a 20-2 record as the Buckeye starter, and his only two losses came in the college football playoffs, one of them against the Crimson Tide. Yeah. So it's a much, much different story there. 
the Sugar Bowl versus Clemson earlier this year. He was not only clutch from a skill-based point of view, but he took a massive hit early in that game and gutted it out and led his team to take out Trevor Lawrence's crew. And so I think that compared to someone like Zach Wilson, he has much more proven clutch, big stage ability, and that will certainly help him out in the NFL. One thing worth mentioning is that the Chicago Bears should not have been in position to draft Fields because they were supposed to pick 20th. Mm -hmm. And like San Francisco, they traded up big time. They traded to the New York Giants, the 20th overall pick, as well as their fifth round pick this year, along with their first and fourth round picks next year for that 11th overall pick, which meant that they were poised to pick Fields. Um... I have a colleague who is a Chicago Bears fan, and he went ballistic in a good way when the Bears drafted Fields. I'm sure most, if not all, of that fan base essentially went nuclear because this was a pick that on paper that they had been really, really wanting. The Mitchell Trubisky experiment has essentially ended in failure, and hopes are high in Chicago that Fields can be their man now think that's a bit premature because over the last few years the Bears haven't exactly had a great track record in developing quarterbacks rather with Trubisky being the latest example in a rather unfortunate trend but again we will see whether or not for example the Bears with that Khalil Mack led defense and hopefully increased roster building and, and, and solid coaching hopefully they can give Field something to work with and even though you know we're Packers fans we we certainly wish Fields a fighting chance in establishing himself as a good NFL quarterback. Yeah, for sure. I think I think the Bears have got a good one here, and I think like I think the Justin Fields has the talent to be the best quarterback in a long time for the Bears. Like I think he's he has the talent to be better than Jim McMahon, and Jim McMahon is the best quarterback from the Bears since Sid Luckman in 1967. So. Like, the Bears, they've had a lot of quarterbacks in their, their years, and they've really missed on some. And, and I think that Justin Fields has the talent to be a quarterback that can be uh, a good one and can win a lot of games in the NFL for a long time. Wait, do you mean to tell me that Kyle Orton will not be remembered as a franchise quarterback? You know, <laughs> he'll be remembered as a franchise quarterback as much as Rex Grossman. Oh, that's gross, man. And I will, uh, and that's and and that's my last pun for that's my last pun for the last next like five or six weeks. I promise oh. the listeners, I will not be I will not be making that a habit. But I had to take that shot. That's so bad. <laughs> uh, anyways, our, folks, aren't you glad we went down that bunny trail? <laughs> anyways, to finish off our discussion of the quarterbacks going in the first round of the NFL draft this year. Let's quickly take a look again at Mac Jones. We told you about his strengths and weaknesses last episode, so we're not going to spend too much time there. He's an accurate pocket passer who works hard, fiery competitor, and seems to be mature, but as we've said before, he lacks athleticism, he has average arm strength, and does not have the wow potential that of some of these other guys we've talked about that they possess. Having said that, I do think he'll be a good fit in New England because yeah. his accuracy, his 
Well, hopefully his decision-making, his he's going to need to bring that first read accuracy into the NFL for sure, but if he can, the New England Patriots for the last 20 years have essentially been predicated largely on that sort of a form of a West Coast offense where it's all about getting the ball out on time, making accurate reads. Um, like Brady did that, like Brady did that a lot, handing the ball off using your run game and, and and things like that. And that should play to Mac Jones' strengths without necessarily exposing his weaknesses too much. The times that New England will need a, a guy with a rocket arm, a guy that can run for first downs, a guy that's bigger and stronger, they still have Cam Newton, which many Patriots fans were less than thrilled when he re-signed, given his eight-touchdown, ten-interception season. But hey, if I'm not mistaken, I believe you mentioned in an early episode, Newton did manage to run for 10 or 12 touchdowns on the ground. And so what I envision here is that the Patriots will, they will try to groom Jones to be their, their, their starter, but when they need a change of pace, uh, a short yardage, or a flea flicker, or a design run, they can bring Newton in for that, for that strength and that speed. But essentially, Mac Jones is everything Camp Newton isn't, and the one thing that Mac Jones really, really lacks, Camp Newton has. So I think this could be a good fit. I think so too. And like, Bill Belichick went out and spent money on tight ends. You know, bring a lot of them. Yeah, bring back that dual tight end system with uh, Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith. And I think that that really helps and favors Mac Jones because the best thing for a quarterback is to have an easy read in the middle of the field. Safety like, blanket. Yeah. So, like, for those of you who may not, you know, quite think about it, like, a 10-yard pass over the middle is like a 10-yard pass. But a 10-yard pass on the outside can be 30-yard pass. So, with a guy... Who, Let alone a field side out. Right. A field side out may be 40-yard pass. That through needs, the air. Through the air that needs to get there just for 10 yards down the field. So, with a guy like Mac Jones who doesn't have, like, optimal or, you know, great arm strength, being able to use his talent to the best of his abilities and tacking the middle of the field where the tight ends work, I think that'll really help him. And I think that getting those big body tight ends and throwing Mac Jones being able to, you know, use that to his advantage will really help him. Certainly. And for our final item on the docket... We have to talk about the Green Bay Packers. Now, yes, they did draft some guys, <laughs> but of course that's not as big a story as Aaron Rodgers' seemingly significant displeasure with the organization that has got a lot of people talking for obvious reasons, and people have varying opinions on this, but Tyson, what's your take? Yeah, so I here's my take, okay? This is a, a tough spot for the Packers' management, because the Packers management, when they brought in Matt LaFleur, it was reported that the management went to Aaron Rodgers and they said, Aaron, don't be the problem, right? And that was reported. So, like, obviously that's not Aaron Rodgers leaking that information. So Aaron Rodgers, he comes back and he plays well under Matt LaFleur in the first year. Maybe a down year compared to what he's done in the past, but, you know, the, the Packers have a good 13-3 and three year under Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers' first year. And, um, you know, they go to the NFC Championship game, but then they get steamrolled by the running game of the 49ers. So that NFL draft comes around, and they decide to pick Jordan Love. And obviously Aaron Rodgers isn't particularly happy about them drafting his replacement, especially when they just went to the NFC Championship game 
and Aaron Rodgers believes that they could win it now. So I think that when Aaron Rodgers was coming into this season, he definitely had a chip on his shoulder of trying to prove the Packers that they made a mistake. And he goes out there and he wins an MVP. So now, all of a sudden, what I see here is we have the Packers going to Aaron Rodgers, and they were trying to take away Aaron Rodgers' power in the organization, trying to take away his power, trying to take away his influence. And Aaron Rodgers is now saying, I'm going to use all my power now to try and get what I want. So I think what is going to be in a a situation now where the Packers have essentially done everything they can up until this point to take power away from Aaron Rodgers within the organization, and now Aaron Rodgers has said, come out and said, it's me or Brian Gutekinds to the general manager. If they fire Brian Gutekinds, they're essentially saying, all right, Aaron Rodgers, you control the organization now, which is completely contrary to everything they've done in the last three years. So the Packers ownership and, or not the Packers, the Packers management executives are in a real tough spot because they almost have to go back on three years of work that they've done in their organization. And their entire philosophy all of a sudden now has to change. And that's going to be really tough. And especially given the fact that if Aaron Rodgers does leave for whatever reason, We don't want to jump the gun on trade rumors or even talk of him retiring and hosting Jeopardy or whatever else he Mm. wants to do. I think the fact is, if Aaron Rodgers does leave, the difficult thing is the Packers championship window gets a whole lot smaller unless Jordan Love can come straight out of the blue and become a solid starting quarterback after a rookie year where he was barely even developed at all. That's that's a, not a good proposition for the Packers, but I'm going to come in with a hot take here. Okay. All right, I'm going to come in with a hot take, and as a Packers fan, y'all, fo- y'all folks out there may not expect a Packers fan to have this take, and I know that there are people who are going to disagree perhaps strongly with this, but I frankly think Aaron Rodgers needs to smarten up and take some responsibility for his own shortcomings. And what do I mean by that? 13-3 and records and NFC Championship appearances in each of the last two years. That first year, like you said, they were no match for San Francisco's run game, but the defense has gotten better since then. Run defense still a bit of a weakness, but overall, over the last three or four years, the Green Bay Packers have, have had a better defense with the emergence of guys like Jair Alexander, Darnell Savage... And a signing like Zadarius Smith, uh, the development of Kenny Clark. That's not all that they need, but it's definitely a major improvement on what they've got before. Now, this argument that the Packers organization hasn't given Aaron enough help, and that's why Aaron has a right to be mad, I fully disagree with. Because, folks, throwing the ball 50 times a game is not the only way to win football games, and I think a lot of people are out there behaving as if that's the case, but for example, last year, one of the reasons why Rodgers was so successful, other than maybe the chip on his shoulder, was Matt LaFleur's highly balanced offense. Run heavy, play action, multiple schemes, multiple options, it really took the heat 
off Rodgers a little bit. It got the ball out of his hands faster, which opened it up for, for him to make more of those wow plays that we've come to expect from him for a decade and a half, if not more. But then you look at this NFC Championship game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year. I think something that has gotten lost in the wash somehow is the fact that the Packers' defense picked off Tom Brady three times in the second half of that game. Mm. And Rodgers wasn't able to get even two field goals. That's six points. He wasn't even able to get six points out of those key drives despite leading one of the NFL's best offenses that year. And afterwards, he had the guts to throw Matt LaFleur under the bus for making an admittedly questionable call to kick the field goal rather than go for it on the fourth down. Is that a questionable call? Yes. I think that to me is a young coach losing his nerve a little bit in the critical spot of the NFC Championship game. But the fact is they're not even in that position. If Aaron Rodgers, the MVP, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, is able to punch it in the end zone once out of those three interceptions, or even to get two field goals, that game becomes a lot more interesting. Now, we have to give some credit to that Buccaneer defense. They are terrifying. Those like that, those fast linebackers, those big defensive linemen, and a very talented secondary, there's a reason they manhandle Patrick Mahomes in the Kansas City offense in the Super Bowl. Nonetheless... The fact is is that elite quarterbacks are expected to elevate their game in the playoffs, are expected to elevate their teammates, and really show up in big moments. I don't believe that Aaron Rodgers did that, especially compared to how he is now throwing people under the bus. That, to me, is not a winner, and that, to me, is trying to deflect blame elsewhere. Interesting. That's an interesting take, and I... I'm beginning to question now my own opinions on Aaron Rodgers because of that. And I, I thank you for that opinion because you're right. Like, Aaron Rodgers' ability to, to play in the playoffs, you know, here's my okay, here's my thoughts, is that it's almost as if, like, all of the Packers fans see, like, Cleveland and for the longest time the Buffalo Bills and the Jaguars. And they go, man, they suck. They don't have a quarterback. And we have one, and we have one of the best ones. And instead of thinking about this critically, and instead of like looking at Aaron Rodgers' game, they just naturally assume that Aaron Rodgers is perfect and everything else is the problem around him. Mm-hmm. And that Aaron Rodgers, you know, they're so afraid to lose him that they're operating their entire belief system on Aaron Rodgers out of fear of losing him. I think that's exactly right, but when you do look at this critically, I think the truth paints a much different picture than this narrative you just referenced. Going back to what I said so I can finish that point, the notion of Aaron Rodgers not having enough help is silly. S-I-L-L-Y. Silly. And the argument here often predicates on the notion that they haven't drafted a a wide receiver in the first round since Javon Walker in 2002. I believe it was. But there's no way that this actually translates to a lack of of help that Devontae Adams, second round, now a top five receiver, Aaron Jones, fifth round, top 10 playmaker, Robert Tunyon, undrafted tight end, Pro Bowl season, and he's still young enough to get better. Not to mention the defensive side of the ball as well. The Zadarius Smiths, the Kenny Clarks, the Jair Alexanders, the Darnell Savages 
of the world addressing what five years ago was an area of severe need mm-hmm. on the Green Bay Packers. The Packers and oh, and let's not forget the the oft overlooked for some reason offensive line position Bakhtiari. Even when guys like Sitton and Bula- Josh Sitton, rather Brian Balaga left, they brought in Elton Jenkins. They brought in Corey Lindsley, and now that Corey Lindsley is gone, they drafted Josh Myers in the second round as a versatile interior lineman. Folks, the fact is, two two truths that I would like to present to you. First of all. It doesn't matter where a guy is drafted so long as he ultimately succeeds in the NFL. And to try to dismiss things like Devontae Adams being drafted in the second round, Aaron Jones being drafted in the fifth round, and to in your head turn that into the Packers aren't interested in giving Rodgers weapons, frankly, is absurd. If anything... I think the Packers fan base should be appreciating their organization for being able to get these guys in the later rounds without compromising a well-roundedness in the rest of the team. Now, I will grant, right, it's not perfect. Tyson, you and I were talking about how, obviously, defensive line, interior linebacker, inside linebacker remain areas of need on the defense, and they could still do some work to shore that up. But overall, um, the Packers have done what they can to give Aaron Rodgers a well-rounded team that is able to win games in a variety of ways. And these last two seasons certainly were an indication of that. As I said before, Green Bay was Tampa Bay's toughest opponent in the playoffs last year. And when you recognize all of these facts, you have to look at Aaron Rodgers and be like, listen, I don't know the man. I'm not necessarily here to bash his character and say that he is a cancer or a diva or whatever but I think the fact is he is throwing people under the bus and he's being selfish and as much as as it would hurt to burn the bridge with Aaron Rodgers and as much as I don't think Brian Gutekunst has been anything like a spectacular GM I think the Packers need to call his bluff Mm. that's interesting because like I I wonder how much of this is just is only the only thing about this is just the Jordan Love pick. That's that's my question is maybe Aaron Rodgers got hurt feelings from the Jordan Love pick and that's what this is about. And that's that's a possibility, right? Like maybe he's just upset about it. And you know, I wonder how much of this could be remedied by just trading Jordan Love. Like you get rid of Jordan Love and you just decide, "All right, Aaron, we're going to keep operating as usual, but we don't have anybody to replace you. You're our long-term future. Um, like, like, is that a compromise? I don't know if the Packers want to do that or not. But like you said, like you made good points there. Like, Getting Aaron Jones in the fifth round has been a great asset for Green Bay. And I think that it, it's overlooked that they were able to re-sign him this year. And I think that... After he hit free agency, too. Yeah, he hit free agency, and then they still went out there and re-signed him. And I think with Green Bay, that narrative of, of having not enough weapons, like, sure, they don't have three number one wide receivers, but other than Tampa Bay, who does? <laughs> right. Like, okay, so the Buffalo Bills, they have, you know, Stephon Diggs, number one, so we have Devontae Adams. But then they have guys like Cole Beasley and, and, and you know, John Ross. Or not John Ross, uh, Josh Brown or John Brown. And... and um, like they they had you know tight end Dawson Knox like he's 
he's good, but he's nothing special. I would argue that Tunyon is even better. And, um, you know, like, Josh Allen doesn't seem to be complaining. And, you know, the Buffalo Bills' run game was not nearly as good as what Green Bay was. And then you look at Kansas City, right? The, the One of the sexiest picks out there. Tyreek Hill, sure, number one receiver. Travis Kelsey, essentially another number one receiver. But their run game is nowhere near as good as Green Bay's. Their defense is not as good as as Green Bay's. Yeah, so, exactly. And I there mean, you go. Like, they had Sammy Watkins, and they have Nicole Hardman. But Nicole Hardman wasn't a top pick. And Sammy Watkins has been hurt and in and out of the lineup for a lot a lot of the time. So... It's a it's an interesting narrative that's been plastered over the Packers that they don't get enough offensive weapons to help Rodgers when five years ago the narrative about the Packers is is that they have so much on the offense but they can't put a defense on the team. So like I, it seems like no matter what Aaron Rodgers is upset and the Green Bay Packers can't win. No, and that's very unfortunate and One more thing I would like to bring up, just in case some of you listeners out there are unconvinced, who is the model of winning in the NFL? Tom Brady. Now, whatever else you think about Tom Brady, oh, he's not likable, I'm tired of the Patriots, you know what, so am I. I'm tired of Brady winning rings, you know what, so am I. Deflate gate, blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing. Tom Brady has the most Super Bowl wins by an individual player in history, for a few reasons. First of all, he cares more about the Lombardi Trophy than his individual statistics. Brady will hand the ball off 40 times a game in the Super Bowl, which he kind of did against the Rams a couple of years ago, if that is the greatest path to victory. And I don't think Aaron Rodgers is that kind of a guy. Aaron Rodgers wants the big numbers, the great Sterling touchdown-to-interception ratio, and these are all very good things to have but he also there's this notion that oh like he's not happy because they don't give him weapons and Packers fans think they don't give him enough weapons where Brady has won Super Bowls Super Bowls with Chris Hogan being his number two receiver with these Danny Amendola being his number three receiver like Brady has won Super Bowls with scrubs at wide receiver or mediocre options at wide receiver. James White is not that special of a running back by himself. Right, and so on and so forth. Dion Branch won a Super Bowl MVP. Right. Like, bec- like as a wide receiver because of, you know, Tom Brady. Because of Brady and and that system and everything. So here's here's where I'm going with this, is that Brady, first of all, he obviously elevates in the playoffs. The guy is a freak mentally he's he's unbreakable he's got that mamba mentality michael jordan mentality whatever it is brady has that he elevates less talented players instead of throwing them under the bus and pardon me in tampa bay they also ultimately won because, like I said before, the Tampa Bay gave him help on the defensive side of the ball as well as the offensive side of the ball. Brady recognizes that. He, he, he honestly, like, he doesn't care about stats that much. He wants more Lombardi trophies. And he's finally willing to take massive pay cuts in order to achieve this goal. Tom Brady has always been, by conventional standards, criminally underpaid for a top quarterback in the NFL. But he's willing to do that because with New England and now with Tampa Bay, 
he wants them to be able to put a better team around him so they can go win more rings. And Aaron Rodgers doesn't really do any of these things despite having way more like natural talent than Tom Brady mm-hmm. and, and all these regular season statistics and everything. So ultimately, I would submit to the Packers fan base that, well, we all love Aaron Rodgers. It's been a pleasure to watch him play for as long as we have. But the man is far from perfect. And at this stage, I think some of the less savory aspects of his character are really coming out. And the Green Bay Packers as an organization need to hold him accountable rather than catering to his every whim. Yeah, and I think I agree with you on that. Like, it's not okay. Like, when we saw with James Harden with the Houston Rockets, it's not okay for a player to start controlling the organization because it's just not going to end well and it's not going to turn out well. Like, there's a reason why there needs to be a general manager in place. So when we look at the Packers, I, I think that, you know, it's it's a tough situation and I obviously want Aaron Rodgers to be the quarterback here for the next few years. Um, but, yeah, I think that, you know, in, to some extent, I think he needs to have a little bit of a change of mind. And I I don't know if it's going to happen, but I hope he comes back. Certainly. That's that's what we all hope for down in, down in Wisconsin and down in this this Packers fan base. And only time, only time will tell, right? Mm-hmm. But in the interest of time, why don't we move on to our final topic? Sure, and just before we hit our final topic, I just have some you know some news from the hockey world, and it's a little bit sad. Uh, T.J. Oshie, his his dad passed away, and mm-hmm. and uh, some of you may recall that when T.J. won the Stanley Cup with the Capitals in 2018, he mentioned in a very emotional interview that you know his dad had Alzheimer's disease, and and that he was able to thankfully share that moment with uh, with his dad while he could still remember it, and um, you know he he shared in the interview that. You know, the, his dad was starting to forget some things because of the disease, but, you know, hopefully, thankfully that he was able to, to share that with him, and, and there's some photos of T.J. Oshie embracing his dad after lifting the Stanley Cup. So, you know, uh, just some sad news for that, and, uh, you know, uh, sad news for the Oshie family, and, and our thoughts and prayers will be with them. For sure. Rest in peace, Coach Oshie, and you certainly raised a fantastic young man, by all indications, a very good player in the NHL, and... Mm-hmm. You know, we, we certainly hope that the Oshi family will be able to find comfort from their friends and their support system in this time as mm-hmm. the Stanley Cup playoff run is, is about to begin. You know, it can't be easy having to deal with that personally and then having to mentally reload to go chase another cup, but that's professional sports sometimes, and we, we think and we hope that Oshi will be supported by his loved ones and by hopefully his Capitals teammates as well mm-hmm. as he goes through this loss. Now... Our topic that's coming next also involves the Washington Capitals in a far more, shall we say, unfortunate way, and it involves Tom Wilson, this the, the winger that has in these in the sorry in the past few years he's played a lot with Alexander Ovechkin and Evgeny Kuznetsov on the Capitals' top line. Tom Wilson is six foot four. About 220 pounds. He is able to score 40 or 50 points Only a year. He's not quite as big as you might think. He's not 240 pounds. He plays like he's 290 sometimes, but in terms of just how physical he is. That's surprising. He's not as big as you think, but he plays bigger. Unfortunately, too big and way too far across the line, as Tyson, you're about to explain. 
Yeah, so for those of you who may not know, that uh, there was a situation in the NHL last night where uh, on, on Monday night in, in May 3rd, it, the Rangers were playing the Washington Capitals, and it was a situation where the Rangers were on the power play. And uh, so there was a puck that was thrown to the net. There was a little bit of a, a loose puck there. Happens all the time in hockey. And one of the Rangers players, the Rangers were on the power play, one of the Rangers players kind of went to the net and started trying to dig and poke around the goalie. It was Pavel Buchnevich, correct? Yeah, Pavel Buchnevich for the, for the Rangers, trying to poke around and poke at the goalie and try and get a loose puck and, you know, maybe try and get a greasy goal. And, you know, that happens all the time. And, you know, the ref will blow the whistle and, you know, there'll be a, a little a brouhaha, so to speak, of <laughs> some pushing and shoving and that kind of stuff that happens. But nothing usually comes of it. But with Tom Wilson on the ice, you never know. And, and unfortunately for this time, he was. So what happens was is that, you know, we a couple of digs at, at the goalie and, you know, Pavel Buchnevich all of a sudden gets pushed. Um, he gets kind of tripped over his own skates, his own stick, and he finds himself on the ground and, or on the ice uh, laying headfirst with his arms kind of forced kind of underneath him. So Pavel Buchnevich doesn't really have a chance to defend himself, so to speak. And Tom Wilson in this kind of all of a sudden now it's become a scrum at this point where all of these players are coming in. Uh, Tom Wilson takes a, a big, big, big punch aimed right at the back of the head of Pavel Buchnevich, and he takes a swing and he hits it. Mm-hmm. And obviously one of the Rangers players, Ryan Strom, saw, sees this. So Ryan Strom, he immediately jumps on, on Tom Wilson and tries to get him off before more damage can be done. And, and Tom Wilson, you know, goes after Ryan Strom as well. And Artemi Panarin gets caught up in the middle of it. and Artemi Panarin, who, by the way, after finally dealing with this political situation in Russia, much smaller player, skilled player, and somehow in this scrum as players are wrestling around, he gets isolated with Tom Wilson, and the results were difficult to watch. Yeah, you see Tom Wilson really ragdolling him, throwing him all over the ice. You know, you see, you know, Artemi Panarin is trying his best to fight up for him, like stand up for himself and and wrestle him and push him away, but Tom Wilson, bigger, stronger, he's just able to overpower him and, and push him, and, and um, yeah, basically the refs, they, they didn't handle the situation well, and they didn't get it under control very fast, but they eventually did, and uh, the results of the matter were that Tom Wilson got uh, four minutes uh, for roughing and then a 10-minute misconduct, and Artemi Panarin was hurt and he had to leave the game. So Artemi Panarin, he's officially been considered out for the rest of the season. Now, they only have three games left. They're going to be done in a week, but we don't know what the injury is. It could be worse than... He he could have missed more time, but we'll never know. So, you know, it's kind of an unfortunate situation. When you look at it and you watch the videotape and you see Tom Wilson purposely trying to hit the back of the head of Pavel Buchnevich while he's down, that's just dirty. And just... As a frame of reference, punching the back of the head is illegal in both boxing and MMA yes. because of the immense irreparable damage it can cause to another human being. And these are combat sports, so the fact that Tom Wilson would even try this mm-hmm. deliberately is a horrible look. And so is, again, folks, I, if you haven't seen this for yourselves, I would encourage you, if you're interested, to YouTube Tom Wilson Panarin and just watch that footage for yourself because if you think oh we're we're overreacting a little bit uh, no frankly this is 
it was difficult to watch, not just the going at the back of the head to a defenseless player, but also Artemi Panarin, while he was being ragdolled by Wilson, had his helmet off already. So had his hits, his head rather struck the ice, he could have been seriously hurt. And Tom Wilson threw him to the ice multiple times with no regard for his safety. Now, before you say, oh, is this just Wilson lost his head? Uh, unfortunately, Wilson has been suspended, I believe, five times before mm-hmm. in his NHL career. The most recent one and his most severe one was in 2018. He delivered an illegal and completely needless hit to the head of Oscar Sundquist, a St. Louis Blues forward. And uh, that was this was a 20-game suspension that was ultimately essentially reduced to 14 games by an arbitrator after appeal. So my point is, is that this is at least Tom Wilson's sixth suspendable offense, and his actions were completely inexcusable. And not only did the Department of Player Safety choose not to suspend him, they were they only fined him $5,000 because that is the most that you're allowed to find someone under the current NHL collective bargaining agreement. Now, Tyson... I think I can speak for us both when I say that in polite terms, this is ridiculous. Yeah, so, like, for those of you maybe not fully engaged in, like, the CBA talks and the lockout and the collective bargaining agreement, the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, is an agreement on the rules of how the NHL is going to operate with the NHL players. So the players have a union and they, you know, they have labor disputes and they decide how the NHL gets to govern itself and how much the players are going to get paid. So that's what the CBA is. So when part of the CBA, the players negotiate uh, negotiations, there's a big point for them is to try and lower the number of dollars that are allowed per fine because it's it's not fair for, in their minds, for teams to be able to fine their players while st- for, like, non-game offenses. So that's why the... You know, fines are something that's really controversial because when a team basically is asking a fourth line player to go out and fight somebody and then that player gets fined for it, it only hurts the player, it's not hurting the team. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Like the team is asking the player to do something that's kind of illegal and then the player gets fined for it. The player only gets retribution, but the, the team doesn't. So that's why the NHL Players Association, the players, they want to have these fines as low as they possibly can, as part as well as for you know when they do something dumb, then they don't get fined nearly as much as they normally would. That is why the maximum allowable for a fine is only five thousand dollars, and you know in part of this ruling, the NHL got some different areas that were probably negotiated. So. That's why that the fine was only to be you know five thousand dollars because that's the maximum. Um, but the fact that this wasn't a suspendable offense, I don't understand. It's pretty ridiculous to me. This is similar to a Todd Bertuzzi situation because Todd Bertuzzi hunted down and and. Perp- and I think this was what two thousand five or something mid two thousands. This was a while ago. Two thousand four. Four. Sorry. Yeah, two thousand four. Todd Bertuzzi hunted down Steve Moore punched him in the back of the head and drove him into the ice. And as uh, as several other players collapsed in onto the scrum and yes. were ended up at the bottom of this. The result of this is that 
uh, Todd Bertuzzi almost ended Steve Moore's life, and he did end Steve Moore's career. Now, this is retru- this was retribution for, for a hit that Steve Moore did. That's why it happened. But On Marcus Naslin, the one-time Canucks captain, so it was emotional, but nonetheless unacceptable. Absolutely. So the suspension that ended up happening is that, you know, Todd Bertuzzi, this happened late in the year. He was suspended for the rest of the year in the playoffs, which only happened to be 20 games. And then immediately the following year, it was the NHL lockout. And then Todd Bertuzzi was able to come back the next year after the lockout dispute ended. So with that rule, with kind of that what happened is that, you know, that was only a 20-game suspension for something that almost ended a man's life. I think that this play is equally as dangerous to that as it could have seriously injured Buchnevich. So... I and would, Panarin, for that matter. Right, and Panarin, I think that it could have been easily a 15 to 20 game suspension for this. And what I'm about to say is, I recognize it is a bit hyperbolic and maybe the hottest take I've given uh, on this show to date, but why stop at 20? Like, if it was me, this is his, at least his sixth suspendable offense. If it was up to me, at least in a vacuum... I, 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 I'd ban him for the entire year, like 82 games or whatever, without pay. And the reason why I say that, knowing that it sounds hyperbolic and it sounds like a real exaggeration, but folks, you do this to someone on the street or on a public ice rink, you go to jail, right? You can be legally prosecuted for this. And as we discussed before the show, I think Pavel Buchnevich should get his lawyer and launch a lawsuit against Tom Wilson because this is... This is not a hockey play. This is this is essentially an assault on live television in an NHL hockey game by one man against, frankly, two others. And and needless, putting aside the the practical uh, issues with suspending a guy for a whole season or anything dramatic like that, the point I'm trying to make is that if the NHL Department of Player Safety is not interested in standing up for the safety of his players, then why the heck do we even have it? What use is it for? And how can the players trust that their well-being will be looked after? And I think unless things change, the answer is they can't trust that. And that's why fighting was always in the game for so many years, is because guys weren't getting the suspensions and the punishments that they felt was fair. Like, with any situation, like back in the day in the 80s, like, if somebody took a run at Wayne Gretzky and hit him, like, you had to deal with big guys like Essa Tikkanen and Kevin Lowe. And and Marty McSorley. And Marty McSorley. You know, those guys were there, and you better believe you're going to get pounded the next time they're on the ice. And that's why they had those big goons in the hockey game. Like, there's a reason why the, the Leafs had Colton Orr on their roster for so many years. Is because when the Rangers used to have Derek Bougard before he tragically passed away, and right. r- when the Montreal Canadiens and several other teams had a guy like George LaRock before he retired. Yeah, and the Flames had Brian McGratton, right, or Ratius Ivanins. Radis Ivanins. Right, uh, not, not quite Jonas Valsuina Wasos, uh-huh. which I don't think we will ever stop referencing on this show, <laughs> but yes, Brian McGratton, Radis Ivanins, Andre Waugh, and, and people like that. Right, so. Like, the point that Brian Burke was always trying to make is that when you take these big tough guys who fight out of the game, that leaves room for people like Matt Cook, 
and Tom Wilson. And Rafi Torres and Sean Avery. And and Brad Marchand to make dirty plays. And because the the player safety isn't going to suspend them, they can do essentially whatever they want and get away with it relatively unscathed. One of the most disgusting parts of Tom Wilson's shenanigans that night was what he did in the penalty box afterwards. He had his jersey ripped off because it had been pulled off in the scrum, and he was in the penalty box grinning and flexing and essentially taunting the Rangers after physically assaulting two Rangers players well after the play had ended. That, to me, is... Like, it has been claimed that Tom Wilson is a great teammate, but frankly, I... I would struggle to be in the same locker room as a guy who's willing to do that and thinks that you know he's a big tough guy and he's done something, he's done something good or somehow helped his team by doing this. And you know this is an it's an emotional, it's an emotional thing. You never want to see guys get taken advantage of or or attacked when they can't defend themselves. And certainly, I think pro athletes are not an exception to that rule. They're human beings too. And they should be able to, to play within the rules and not have to essentially get jumped. Um, one thing that I will say before we wrap it up for, for the day, folks, is that we recognize fighting is a very controversial part of hockey, and we're not here trying to glorify the enforcer subculture of the 80s and the 90s because that that has its own, had its own problems. I recognized, or rather I referenced Eric Bugard. He passed away in 2011, after essentially being abused long-term by his teams. And one thing that they would do to him is that rather than letting him heal up, you know, go on a short-term injured reserve to heal up the, the injuries he'd accumulate from hitting and fighting, they would essentially give him more painkillers and force him to go out the next night, place three minutes a game, and fight the toughest guy on the other team. And... Wade Belak and Rick Rippon are two other names that they they took their own lives and uh, in the in the uh, in the 2010s and while this there's more to these stories that we don't have time to go into right now one thing I do want to say is that uh, well we're certainly not advocating for for the same enforcer subculture that used to exist where these guys were essentially expected to be invincible and they had few options for their for their mental health and their mm-hmm. their physical health. But what we are advocating is that, well, I think, Tyson, a few things come to mind. One, I think there needs to be a change in how the instigator penalty is carried out in the NHL, because right now, essentially, what it does is it discourages severely a player for for standing up for his teammate, because nowadays, if you drop the gloves or if you physically challenge a guy, you're the one that goes to the penalty box, and they don't. And that makes it very hard for even gutsy teammates to stand up for their for their guys because they don't want to put their team on the penalty kill. And, and another thing that we want to talk about is that I do think there's room for the pendulum to swing the other way with guys that are expected to play some hockey and guys that are treated just like any other player but are big and strong and tough enough to challenge aggressive agitators like Tom Wilson. Ryan Reeves is a great example of this. He's a Vegas Golden Knight that can give you 10 to 20 points a year and kill penalties, so he's an effective fourth-line player, and you have a reason to roster him other than his brawn. But uh, in 2018, we were watching this clip before the show when the Vegas Golden Knights played the Washington Capitals 
Ryan Reeves leveled Tom Wilson twice in eight seconds. And I guarantee you that Tom Wilson does not have free reign to abuse William Carlson or Mark Stone or any of the Night Star players with Ryan Reeves on that bench. These are guys that perhaps we do need to stand up for their teammates. I think so. Like, I, I understand that fighting is always going to be a controversial part of hockey, but I think that you can't allow players to go unchecked and to do these dirty things without some sort of retribution or consequence. And if the league isn't going to police it fairly, then you have to do it yourself. And I think it's shown time and time again that the league is not uh, able to fairly and objectively dole out punishments that are severe enough for you to do, to not do this again. I think that if Tom Wilson had been suspended for 40 games one day, that maybe he'd reconsider how to play hockey. Uh, I think that maybe if you suspended Matt Cook once a time, like maybe in a second incident for a longer period of time than maybe you know you should have, that maybe he wouldn't have been as aggressive or as dirty of a player as he eventually became. But, you know, I, I think that if the NHL player safety can't be able to police this, then you have to find another way to stand up to your players because if you allow Tom Wilson to do this, somebody's going to get seriously hurt. Somebody's going to get seriously hurt, and we can only hope that he doesn't permanently alter another player's life with one of these reckless plays that he's shown a propensity to go back to time and time again. But that's all we got for you folks here on the draft board. We really hope you enjoyed hanging out with us as usual, and we look forward to seeing you again. But good day and good night for now from the draft. Thank you for listening to The Draft Board. Podcast music, intro, and outro is produced by Graham Bass. Your hosts, again, are David Song and Tyson Workington. Come back next week for more insight from the rink, the turf, and the court. See you soon.